I'm going to be reading from Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. Let us hear the gospel. Glory Glory be to thee, O Lord. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years or young, uh, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled He shall be called a Nazarene. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. You can stay there in Matthew with me. Although we'll be looking at several passages today. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. The passage came to mind. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. My uh, original plan was to start this morning with late birthday wishes because both Pat Harley and myself had birthdays this week and we both turned 39, so that's nice. Um, But then Jason decided to upstage us Um, and this whole week was very Jason. Um, I used to call Jason Soap Opera Digest um, because he likes drama and this week was a doozy for drama. But all's well that ends well. God has been very merciful in sparing Jason's life and limbs. Uh, And drama that ends happily ever after is a wonderful thing. Uh, So praise God for his goodness this week to the Hansels and to our church. I don't know what it is about the Hansels and falling into pits. Um, (laughs) Phil fell in that pit in Joan's basement last year. Why Joan keeps a pit in her basement, I'm not entirely sure. That's a question for another. It's like Silence of the Lambs over there. But anyway, it's best not to. I'll inquire when she's back in town. Um, But before we talk more about pits, I I said last week that we were finally done with Matthew, for real. And I lied because I wanted to finish up the story of Joseph. And I, I preached on this text a few years ago. But Ivy told me that since she wasn't there for it, I had her permission and blessing to preach it again. Uh, and who am I to say no to Ivy? Uh, I've, 
I've said before that Matthew is giving a sort of Joseph's version of the Christmas story, and so throughout Advent and, and Christmas and Epiphany, we've talked a fair bit about Joseph. We've been reflecting on him. He's an interesting character, and he often gets overlooked. Uh, and we're trying to fix that. And I, and I wanted to reflect today, this is kind of the last we really see of him in, in this gospel, uh, I wanted to reflect on this whole Egypt thing, because it's not a typical vacation destination, especially for Jews. Uh, but we're told that that's where Joseph goes. He doesn't go north into Syria or Lebanon. He doesn't go to Asia Minor, even though we know there were Jewish communities there. He, he doesn't follow the wise men east. It would have been easy, you would think, while the angel was talking to them, to go ahead and talk to him and be like, hey, go with these guys. They'll take care of you. They got money. Um, he doesn't go hide in Galilee under an assumed name. No, he, he goes to Egypt. Why, of all places, Egypt? Well, the more I reflected on this passage, I, it ended up reminding me of the other Joseph in Scripture. Because, you know, we have two prominent Josephs in Scripture. Uh, we have Old Testament Joseph and we have New Testament Joseph. And they're very different characters in most respects. They're separated by over 2,000 years, different, different eras, right? But I think that Matthew is intentionally drawing some parallels here. Uh, because a few things they have in common, and I think he wants us to notice those things. Because, remember, his original, Matthew's writing to Jewish people, right? He's writing his original Jewish readers. They're going to know their Old Testament inside and out. Uh, and they were raised on the Joseph story. It's a great story. It takes up a whole big chunk of Genesis, right? And they would immediately pick up on the parallels. And again, it's not just Matthew using a literary device. These are things that actually happened. So God himself is repeating themes. And he's doing that so that we'll notice and connect dots. So what is he trying to tell us here? So then I thought, well, maybe it's good to give us a very brief refresher on Old Testament Joseph. Again, Genesis tells the story. We don't have time to go into everything. But uh, Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons. He happened to be the favorite of the sons. He was the son of Jacob's first love and favorite wife, Rachel. And some of you saw the musical, so you know all about the amazing Technicolor dream code. Um, Jacob is not the best at giving gifts because he doesn't really hide his favoritism, you know. I don't know about any of you, but in our house, about a week before Christmas Day, uh, Mrs. Claus and I pull all the gifts out of the closet and we take inventory. And the point of that is to make sure that everything is roughly even between the six of them. We do this so that they don't need counseling later in life. <laughs> but Jacob goes and buys Joseph the nicest coat, better than everyone else's. And it's colorful in an age of drab gray and brown. And so this thing really stands out. And uh, on top of that, Joseph starts having dreams. Symbolic dreams, but the symbolism is just clear enough that even though he is young, all of his brothers will one day bow to him and show reverence. And that last item was kind of the final straw. And so one day Joseph gets sent by his father to check on his brothers. They're, they're shepherding, uh, and they're pretty far from home. And so he says, you know what, why don't you go check on them? And that's when everything kind of starts to fall apart. And I'm going to read just what happens there, because it's relevant to our story and also, events of the week. <laughs> Back in Genesis 37, 
Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he, went with, uh, he sent him from the valley of Hebron. He came to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming up from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. All right, sorry for all that, but you get the picture here. It's out of the frying pan and into the fire. He escapes the pit only to become a slave in Egypt. Now, maybe certain people could relate who are not here this morning because they're hospitalized, but Joseph spent all day in a pit. A trench, if you want to call it. Uh, a cistern, which was the ancient equivalent of, say, a water line. But Joseph was there without medical attention, without water, in the scorching heat, and I bet he got roughed up first, because that's usually how these things happen. Uh, they didn't lower him into the pit, as you notice here. They threw him. He's beat up. And at the end of the day, he doesn't go to a nice, comfy place to recover. There's no warm hospital bed. There are no sympathetic reporters. And there's no wife to sit by his bedside. He goes from a very bad situation to something much worse. A life of slavery in Egypt. He escapes the pit only to end up in an even deeper one. Egypt really is a much deeper pit than the cistern. It's even more impossible to get out of. And it's going to strip you of all your dignity. You're likely to die there alone, far from family. And that is messed up and really messed up coming from your own brothers. Now, Joseph didn't choose any of this. He didn't ask to be his father's favorite. Uh, he didn't ask God to send him these dreams. And he surely wasn't looking for an all-expense-paid one-way ticket to Egypt. Joseph is what Curly might call a victim of circumstance. Now... How does that reflect on our main text, right? You know, how do, what do Old Testament and New Testament Joseph have in common? And again, putting yourself in the shoes of Matthew's original audience, what common themes stand out? Well, the common themes are that they are both dreamers, and they both get sent to Egypt, and neither of them asked for any of this. 
Think about it. New Testament Joseph had no more choice about going to Egypt than Old Testament Joseph did. He didn't ask for any of this. Everything that has happened to him ever since he's met Mary, pretty much, every extraordinary event of this life of his has been foisted on him. He's not the master of his own destiny. He's not even the master of his own house. Dreams have dictated every step that he has taken. Joseph marries Mary because a dream told him to. Joseph moves his family to Egypt because a dream tells him to. He stays there probably for years because the same dream told him to. He moves back to Israel because another dream tells him to. And then he ultimately goes to Nazareth, a town full of idle gossip and the shame of the paternity rumors, because yet another dream told him to do that. So in these two short chapters, Joseph seems to get very little sleep. Um, It's a lot of angelic interruptions, which as it turns out isn't as pleasant as it sounds. And... His dignity just keeps sinking further and further till it falls off the page. And New Testament Joseph, like his namesake, is also definitely a a victim of circumstance, right? Because nobody chooses Egypt. Egypt is the symbol of oppression and suffering, the original place of exile. It's where you go when you have no choice. A deeper pit than the pit itself. So last week we left off with Joseph just closing the front door as these magi are leaving, right? These strange visitors, these wealthy foreigners from the east. They're just leaving, and Matthew records that they were warned in a dream to go straight home and skip Jerusalem. I'm assuming they told Joseph and Mary about this, otherwise I don't know how we would have a record of it. But as Joseph closes the door, I can guarantee you he's breathing a sigh of relief at this point. Like, thank goodness that debacle is over. Like, the Magi, look, they were very kind, they were very generous, but Joseph doesn't really want all the attention. And as the great theologian Benjamin Franklin observed, fish and company stink both in three days. So if Joseph is anything like me, what does he do at that point? He spends the next several hours cleaning, getting the house back in order after company finally left. This is the great post-Christmas tradition. It's been going on for 2,000 years. But no sooner does his head hit the pillow than God pesters him yet again. When they had departed, the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Herod's about to search for him to destroy him. The first Christmas doesn't have that happily ever after feel, does it? Our our nativity scenes freeze it in this moment. Uh, But it ends in reality in Egypt, of all places, with Joseph and Mary and Jesus living as exiles and asylum seekers in a foreign land. It's within the empire, but it's foreign enough. It's outside the land of promise. And that doesn't seem quite right somehow for the king of the Jews, does it? What this means ultimately is, and most people think they were there for probably about three years, Jesus would have spent much of his infancy, but also like his toddlerhood, right? Playing with other children who speak not Hebrew, but Egyptian and Greek and Latin. Completely different world. The young king of the Jews, yeah, three years among Gentiles. It's odd. 
And it's not an economic migration, it's a political move, right? They only did this because their lives depended on it. And I'm willing to bet that work was hard to come by because you figure in Judea, Joseph could own his own shop. But here, he doesn't even speak the language. He's going to be lucky to be a day laborer. And my guess is that Egypt is where they burned through all that gold from the Magi. Jesus could have had a wealthy upbringing. This move took care of that. This passage reminds us that Joseph's ordeal didn't end on epiphany, right? Things just continue to deteriorate. And Matthew is inviting us, and his original Jewish readers, to once again walk in Joseph's shoes and consider what this move meant for him and his young family. And he is intentionally pointing out the parallels with the Old Testament so that we can see and feel just how hard this is going to be. A respectable Jew would once again be scandalized by this passage. Because it's a shameful thing that Joseph had to go through this. And the shame of it is even worse than it sounds, because when Matthew says in verse 15, he quotes the prophet Hosea and says, Out of Egypt I called my son, he seems to be saying that this was fulfilled when Jesus was called out of Israel. And when you think about it, that makes sense, because where else in Scripture do we have a king who orders the death of baby boys? It's a classic pharaoh move. And yet it happens here in Bethlehem, David's city. And in your ESV Pew Bibles, it actually says the heading right there is the flight to Egypt, but the text itself says that they just left Egypt. Matthew is telling his readers that Israel has become the new Egypt. That's how bad things have become. It is so bad that Jesus, the son of David... The king of the Jews has to hide in Egypt because it is safer there than living with God's people. It's such hostile territory that not even the children are safe. It's the most dangerous place in the empire to be right there is a cradle anywhere near Bethlehem. Now, this is slightly a sidebar, and I'm not going to dwell on it all morning, but one reason this passage is worth talking about and would have been worth talking about is next week. Next week is Right to Life Sunday. And many churches have for decades reserved time in January to lament the massacre of the unborn in this country. Um, for 50 years, by law, with federal blessing, the lives of unborn children have been cheapened and degraded and minimized and snuffed out, all because they pose a threat to the status quo. Babies are a problem. Pregnancies are a problem because they expose sin and abuse. They eat up all your free time and all your other time that wasn't free. They cost money. They prevent career advancement, and they're just not sexy. Babies are God's way of throwing a wrench into the sexual revolution and forcing people to grow up and act like an adult. Babies change your life, and we don't like that. Now, of course, Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, praise God, but 50 years is a long time for sin to fester, and the guilt and shame it creates has, I think, recreated our society to the point that we can't even countenance the evil we have done, and so we bury it in euphemisms, and we hide it from public view, and because we can't face what we've done, abortion is actually now more popular than it's ever been, and politically speaking, according to the polls, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we are losing the debate and the battle for minds and hearts. 
we have a long way to go in undoing the culture of death in America. And personally, it makes me tired just thinking about it. And it is tempting to despair, and I have often wondered how long God will be patient with us. Now, of course, this message is not primarily about that, but Matthew wants you to feel the same sense of desperation. This passage is supposed to sting. A Jewish reader in Matthew's day would flush hot with anger and shame at what he was reading. Because what he's saying is that Israel has reached a low point in history. They are not only an irrelevant, conquered nation, they are also a wicked people. They have come to look more like their pagan neighbors. They are governed by savages, and not just Roman ones. The slaughter of Bethlehem's children was not carried out by Rome. It was ordered by Herod and executed by Jewish soldiers. Circumcised young men of the covenant. Young men raised in the synagogue. Young men who should have known better. This is a horror story designed to frighten and nauseate the reader. It's a dystopian novel. Everything's upside down. What's crazy is that even in recent articles I read yesterday, people are trying to resurrect Herod's image as a charismatic leader who brought about financial prosperity to the people. He's just misunderstood. He may have got carried away sometimes, but look, the trains ran on time. And I bet... A lot of people felt that way in Roman Judea. I bet some of the people reading Matthew's Gospel had kind of fond memories of Herod the Great. They were good years for business. He might not have been a good man, but he was certainly a strong leader. My point is, beloved, that Matthew is painting a picture of God's people that's not very flattering. Scandal after scandal. It's a, it's a culture that has some similarity with ours. A savage time, but sanitized to sound respectable. This slaughter is barely, it barely registers on the news. There's no record of it outside of this gospel. It's like it's a sad event, but it's not earth shattering. It's a, you know, it was a safe, legal, and rare procedure to preserve the throne, the peace, and the economy. And God's people in this mix come across as lost and clueless. They're suffering, but they're also corrupted and confused. And the only people so far in the book who seem to know anything were the magical Persian priests. Because at least they knew the new king had been born and that it was good news. Meanwhile, we're told at the same time, in the same breath, that all of Jerusalem was disturbed by the news. More disturbed by the birth of Jesus than the slaughter of the babies a week later. That's a dark time in history. And so once again, God sends his son into Egypt. In Hosea, God's son refers to Israel, but Matthew says it's really a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the new and better Israel. He's what Israel was meant to be, just as we saw that he was the new and better Moses, giving a more perfect law when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. God has a habit of sending his son to Egypt. He doesn't go there by choice or for the weather. He forces them to go, and they suffer in the process. Nobody is ever happy to go to Egypt. That's why God uses dreams. This is not something normal people would ordinarily do in a daydream. It has to happen at night when crazy things are going on in your head anyway, right? God has to drive his sons to Egypt. But, beloved, he does it for a reason. 
And it's actually explained very clearly by Old Testament Joseph. He explains it very well years later after he was sold. There's a famine in the promised land and things are bad and Joseph's brothers, having long assumed he was dead, find themselves in Egypt begging for grain from a mysteriously powerful government official. And they don't recognize him, but he eventually feeds them and their lives are saved. But the thing that grabbed me most in the narrative, in the, well, in the earlier portion of the narrative, is that he has to leave the room several times, Joseph does, to go weep for joy at seeing these brothers who betrayed him. And at the very end of the story, after Jacob dies and everything else, and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, now what happens between these brothers? Joseph says these words to his brothers. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And I read that passage and I thought, that sounds very much like the gospel, doesn't it? (laughs) It's almost like God was foreshadowing our gospel reading. Why does God send his son to Egypt? So that many people would be kept alive, including the children. God sends his son into Egypt so that the traitors might live, and he delivers them out of Egypt so that they can come live with him in the land of promise. Maybe you begin to see how this applies now to us. Because God doesn't just send Joseph and Mary into Egypt for kicks and giggles. He sends them there, yes, to preserve the life of the infant Jesus. But then God calls them back into Judea, the new Egypt, so that one day when Jesus was a man and his work was done, he would die on a cross just outside of Jerusalem, not far from where he was born. So in the end, he would die anyway after all that. But the difference is that he would do it gladly and voluntarily, not robbed of life in the cradle, but laying down his life willingly. Why? So that the traitors would not die, and so that many people would be kept alive, and so that he could comfort us and speak kindly to us. There is no salvation unless someone goes to Egypt for you. Someone needs to volunteer to go down into the pit. The house of Israel would have starved if Joseph hadn't been sent there as a slave. Israel would have remained slaves if God hadn't sent Moses back there. And if Mary's husband had not obeyed God and gone to Egypt, Jesus would not have lived long enough to do what he came to do. The thing about a pit is that you can't get out of it. And... In our natural state, apart from Christ, that's where we all are. The natural man is born in a pit, and he lives there until he dies, and he has no more power to get himself out than Jason did this week. Someone has to go down there and get you. That's what Jesus does. In all of Scripture, he's the only one who went to Egypt willingly. He wanted to go into the pit of Egypt. Why? Because that's where the sinners are. Why else would he send the dreams? We know that in the dreams, the angels in the dreams are speaking for God, but that means they're speaking for Jesus. Jesus is directing their steps. It's Jesus who says, let's go to Egypt. And it's Jesus who's the one who says, let's go back. 
And that's the most wonderful part of the story. Jesus could have lived anywhere he wanted to in the empire, but he goes back to the lost house of Israel. Jesus looks at his chosen people, lost in their sin and rebellion and darkness, and he says, let's go. Those are my people. I will go to Egypt for them. I will go into the pit. I will bring them back. That's what I came for. Nobody wants to go to Egypt except Jesus. And he does that for us, beloved. The world remains a dark and sinful place. We're surrounded by Egypt. This is where the sinners are. And I think we read a lot of these stories, these ancient stories, and we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking we're no longer living in that barbarous age. Thank goodness, right? But there are worse atrocities happening right now in this world than what Herod did to the babies in Bethlehem. The main difference is now we tend to do it in nice heated facilities with trained professionals in lab coats in very modern-looking cities like Allentown. Slavery still exists. There are estimated some 50 million slaves in the world even today. War still happens, abuse, political oppression, the porn industry, child mutilation, all kinds of things, you name it. Apart from Christ, this place is a pit. Matthew has been highlighting the scandal of it all, but he also wants his readers to know that Jesus loved them enough that he didn't stay away. He goes to the most hostile territory on the map because God does not abandon his people. It's not about what Joseph wanted. He is just a victim of circumstance in a sense, right? He had no choice about where he would live or for how long, but we know that God meant it for good. That's what Jesus came for. He redeems our life from the pit. He comes down to bring us up. And he lived on the run so that the traitors could be called his brothers again and so that many would be kept alive. That's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, Lord. Thankful to see how these these themes, not just literary themes, the theme of history, the story you are telling, how the same themes get repeated, You weave the whole story together, Lord. We thank you for Joseph's obedience to listen to these dreams. We thank you for sending Joseph of the Old Testament down into Egypt as well. But most of all, we thank you that you sent Jesus down, that you sent him into Egypt, into the dark pit so that he could pick us up and take us back with him. Lord, we couldn't do it ourselves. We are completely lost. We are no longer lost. (laughs) We thank you that we are found in Christ. We thank you, Lord. Help us to be thankful throughout the week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.